to another episode of the Status Alternative Podcast. My name is Brittany, and on today's episode, I will be discussing a book I had recommended to me some odd years ago by my best friend and also fellow metalhead Portia. Shout out to Portia. She's a real one. Um, I found this book uh, very interesting and kind of like a holy grail for me. Um, this book is called What Are You Doing Here? A Black Woman's Life and Liberation in Heavy Metal, written by Lena Dawes, and yeah. So, for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to do a quick summary about Lena. Uh, she is a journalist, cultural critic, and photographer. She has contributed to CBC Radio, Metal Edge, The Wire, AfroToronto.com, and BlogHer.com. An active public speaker, she has appeared at South by Southwest and the EMP Pop Music Conference. She lives in Toronto and her personal blog lives at writingisfighting.com. So this book is basically, um, I'm just going to read the synopsis. What are you doing here reveals in captivating detail the dual outsider dilemma of black women who enter the heavy metal, punk, and hardcore music worlds. Lena Dawes walks readers through her lifelong love of metal, subsequent ostracism in the black community, and and very real racism and sexism she has encountered while in pursuit of a community spirit. Her keen observations are buttressed by stories from scores of other black women. Throughout these headstrong pioneers proudly praise the emotional catharsis of loud, fast music, you'll never see heavy metal fans in the same light again. So, a couple of the artists who contributed and a couple of people who have contributed to this book, um, the most well-known ones that I know of is the lead singer uh, Alexis Brown from the band Straight Line Stitch, uh, Dallas Coyle, uh, the co-founder and former guitarist and vocalist for New Jersey's God Forbid, and co-founder of Mad Carousel, as well as Diamond Row who is the guitarist, the lead guitarist for Atlanta-based metal thrashers uh, Tetriarch. And yeah. As well as Deborah Ann Dyer, a.k.a. Skin, uh, the lead singer and songwriter for the rock punk metal band uh, Skunk Anais uh, or something like that. If you don't know who Skin is, if you listen to the song Licking Cram by Seven Dust, she's the female vocalist on that Seven Dust song, so that's her. But that's a couple of the people, as well as a couple of well-known artists, uh, journalists, and university professors as well. So this book is very, very interesting, but it also speaks to my experiences when I was younger, listening and getting into metal music for the first time and eventually punk music also. So um, this book really spoke to me as a fan, especially being a black woman who is into these genres of music that you normally would not see my type of person in. And and it gets talked about a lot in the book. It, um, It delves into those feelings of being ostracized. And as I call it, sort of getting it from both ends. Because on one hand, you kind of have the, on one hand, you have that experience of 
you're not black enough because you are into this music, but then you have also you have you're being lambasted and being um, ostracized by white people as well because it's not normal for black people to be in this music, let alone black women to be into this music. Because rock, metal, punk, hardcore is relatively, to mainstream audiences, especially in North America, this is a genre mostly populated by white men. And is seen as a music for angry white men. But it delves into a whole bunch of other things as well, um, such as looking for community spirit, being ostracized, being told that you're not supposed to like this music. So I'm just going to review a couple of key points, a couple of key things that I took away from this whole book. And I just want to say, for the record, I really, really enjoyed this book. I had fun reading this. It's a quick read. It's very interesting. And I encourage a lot of people to read it. I really enjoyed it. So um, to give a little bit of a backstory on the author. So Lena is a black woman who grew up in Canada she was adopted by a white family. So she does delve into her experiences being a black woman raised by a predominantly white family. And of course, delving into such, delving into this music. So a lot of the contributors, a lot of the people that were interviewed for this book, kind of, not so much, I, I don't want to say the word kind of, a lot of the people, the other black women who have faced a similar thing, not so much being adopted by a white family, but kind of was raised with the same sort of mentality or came or raised with the same um, experiences that we all share. Uh, you kind of grow, you grow up essentially listening to this music at a very young age, but sometimes you get ostracized for liking this music because. So she does talk about her experiences, especially her growing up, and feeling like she was not black enough or having family members and friends sort of make fun of her for listening to this music, um, calling her all types of racial slurs and her experiences being called these racial slurs from people, strangers, so-called friends, and other people's experiences being having these racial slurs being thrown at them just for liking this music or being called an Oreo or being called like, oh, you're, why are you listening to this music? Who are you trying to impress? Why are you listening to this music or having it being called the devil's music at one point? Now, I myself, I'm just going to say this, thankfully have not encountered any of these types of negative experiences because I'm going to be honest with you, I'm very sensitive as much as I want to play a badass. I've told a couple of my friends this. I am sensitive as a marshmallow. I am soft as a pillow. So I don't know if I would still have been listening to this music. I don't know actually what I would have been doing if I had somebody out there like screaming racial epithets at me in my face or threatening to hit me or hit me in these spaces because I'm just there trying to enjoy the music. I'm just there trying to enjoy the music. Now, I have gotten, like, maybe when I was younger, I never really took it as, oh, why are you listening to this music because of my race? I've mostly encountered people telling me or asking me, how can I listen to this music? When in actuality, I listen to some pretty tame stuff. 
compared to the other bands that are out there who have louder, more extreme versions of their music. I what I listen to, I would consider to be pretty tame by any by in my standards. But she does go going back to her because I tend to go on tangents. She does talk about how that experience kind of um uh her grow her essential her um growing up and her childhood playing a factor into some of these things that she later would deal with down the line. And I've already talked about like other experiences of not being considered like people considering it weird or out of the normal. And I use normal with air quotes because in all honestly, like what is considered normal? But yeah, like listening to this music that does not have a sort of background, even though like, let's be honest with you, black people did create this music and not a lot of them get credit for it. But with that being said, so much being like we were considered, I was can I was never considered weird for liking this music. I was just considered weird for just a bunch of other things. <laughs> but listening to this music was not one of them because not a lot of people ask me what music I'm into. To be honest with you, people I think would assume, but a lot of people don't ask me what type of music I'm li- I'm listening to or what music I'm into. But. It's, it does feel a little bit like, especially when you're younger and I started getting into this music right when I was like 13, so 14. So you're definitely going through the whole teenage angst and everything. So I was listening to this music right around 2008, 2009. A lot of the people that are in this uh, book who are talking about their experiences uh, grew up listening to this music during the 60s and the 70s, especially during the 80s. So their experiences are a lot more uh, are a lot a lot more vast than mine are. I'm like the young baby metalhead, in a sense, because I was like, like I said, I was 13 and 14 when I got into this music. So my experiences would definitely vary from theirs. I rarely ran into any problems going to certain scenes. Now, there was this one time when I went to go see Slayer at the Riviera, and I went with my friend Portia because during that time frame, Portia and I would... And Portia is also a a black woman, too, who also loves metal. Um, She also... We would always go to shows together because I... Like, the first concert I went to, I went to go see Alter Bridge. So, if you haven't heard my concert stories episode, you can go listen to that. But the first show I went to, I went with my friend Chris. Now, Chris is not necessarily into the same music I'm into, or he's not really all that into music. Like, certain type of music, he's not all that into. So, going to shows with, like, my brother is different, and going to shows with, like, Portia is different. I mostly... I will say this, I always enjoy going to shows with my best friend Portia than anything because we kind of always had a similar mindset and we always had a similar like sort of look when it, not so much a physical look, but like an outlook, I should have said, on going to these shows. Now I've gone to shows with a couple of other people. I've gone to shows with Catherine. I've gone to shows with um, my brother, um, my friend Chris. I've even gone to shows by myself, too. But, I don't know. It just, for me, it just felt, like, fun when Portia went. Because it was just, I don't know. 
maybe it's because I've known Portia longer. So, there was that. But yeah, I remember we went to go see Slayer at um at the Riviera. It was like a couple of years, like it was way years back. It was some odd years back. And she had pointed out that some of the people that attended the Slayer show were part of like these, uh, these, uh, this, uh, this white supremacist group, group. Luckily, they didn't see me and Portia there, but I, I swear, it's like, I understand the, the sort of like, kind, I, I don't want to say like frustration. I want to say like disappointment when you like, especially for me, because it's bad enough for me, at least it's bad enough when I go to metal shows or rock shows and like, you're always, and I'm always looking despite people's races, like it's, it would be nice to actually meet some fellow metalheads, to meet some fellow like rock fans in this city. And the only time when I see them all out in the same time is at rock and metal shows. You never see these people out during the day, which is crazy to me. So, and then it'd be even better if it was like fellow black people who could understand my struggles and understand what I've been through, who understand because for me at least when it comes to listening to this music it's very much me looking for a sense of community than it is just relating to people so there's that at least from my experience I can't say for anybody else but there's that and then of course there's the aspect of black communities have still have their hang-ups which is interesting to me because I I always knew that we as black people only will like take up for certain things at a time, but have like our uh, have our reservations about everything else or have reservations about certain other topics. Like when, when you get to chapter, I want to say when you get to the last chapter, And one of the quotes in the last chapter, the first uh, paragraph, uh, I think Lena was on Twitter and she was asking, and here it is, and I quote, does anyone know of any magazine editors of urban magazines who would be willing to talk about black rock artists? Hit me up, please. And then her friend underneath, uh, at P.D. Freeman, um, his name is Phil, uh, magazine editors, ha, of urban magazines, ha, ha. Willing to talk about black rock artists. Ha 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 ha. Has stroke dies. And when going into that. And understanding that. Not a lot of like even black. Like. Even black artists. Or magazines are willing to talk about. These black rock artists. Even despite the fact that they are also black. Because they are rock musicians. Or rock artists. Urban magazines won't touch them with a 10-foot pole. And that was one aspect that used to drive me crazy because this was like, I was still getting in, still stepping my toe into listening to like pop punk bands as like my gateway bands. Shout out to my episode on gateway bands. But listening to gateway bands and listening to like earlier more tamer stuff at the time I would still watch the BET awards too and it would like just confuse me and confound me because it's it's like take bands like who like they're not all necessarily all black 
members of these bands, but there's at least one black member of these bands. And it used to like kind of frustrate me because you have bands like Seven Dust at the time. You had bands like, and they're still around, bands like a Seven Dust, like Kill Switch Engage when Howard Jones was still in the band. You still had like Rage Against the Machine. You still had these guys who were black men, but they were not on the BET Awards. It was either best R&B album, best hip-hop album. It would just never be, like, best... Like, it's black entertainment television, yet you only see hip-hop and R&B and soul being recognized. Not anything to doing with rock, not anything to do with metal or punk or hardcore. Like, I remember the first time I saw some type of rock in the BT Awards. And that was Travis Barker. I was like, are you serious? You mean to tell me you'll have Travis Barker, the drummer of Blink-182, on the BET Awards, but you won't have bands like Seven Dust who have black uh, a black member in the band? Like, come on. Like, and I will give credit to Prince because Prince was actually out here rocking a guitar in his music, actually playing guitar. And it, and it used to frustrate me because it's like, they're black too. This music, despite the music that they're listening to, despite they are black at the end of the day. And it just used to like, it used to bother me, not as much as it does now, because I, I'm going to be honest with you, I have since given up on people, it's like, out here. It's like, it's bad enough, like, you have the Grammys, and the rock performance goes on before the show is televised, unless you're, like, Metallica or, or like, any type of rock artist that has been recognized, even though they've been in the game for, like, 30 or 40 years already, they get recognized, but the new bands, no, they get their awards off stage or off camera. Excuse me. It's utterly ridiculous, in my opinion, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's just very frustrating. As a fan of this music, and it's bad enough, it gets a bad rap, but to not see it being recognized in the general public as something evil or something to avoid is, is completely ridiculous, in my opinion. But yeah, and then to see, like, because I, I remember watching a couple of movies about, like, certain situations like this where older black people during the 60s and 70s did not, or in 50s, did not want, in 40s and 30s, did not want their kids associating with blues and, like, this music, like, jazz and blues and just this this sort of, like, the Howling Wolf era. They didn't want their kids associating with it because I guess it just, because there, there is that part in the color purple as well. To, so, so to go way back into that in the movie, when Suge was a jazz singer, singer, she grew up in the church. Her father sort of, um, her father, what was the word I was looking for? Sort of disowned her because she was like, considered a sinner and had all these kids and everything. Like, you you had black people who were in the church and gospel music, and that was appropriate. 
But getting involved in jazz and blues at the time, that was considered a hang-up. That was considered something that they did not want to associate with. So it's like, it, it just didn't get any easier. It, it, and, and of course, not only them not wanting to associate with this music because it brought back so-called bad memories, but the fact that when you get a little bit farther down the line, you kind of get this feeling that they want them to sort of assimilate to society as normal children. Um, going after your dreams was considered, like, it, the only way to make a living, especially... I, I feel like there was very much this this undertone of, like, you have to assimilate so they won't see you as other. You have to assimilate to what they want. Because there weren't that many kids out here taking the risk. And even now, like, there there still is that vibe when it comes to, like, say, adolescents or teenagers. This, this unsolicited pressure to go to college, get a job, pay bills until you die. There's very much a lack of do what you want to do, do what makes you happy. And we will support you nonetheless. Not saying that parents are out here not trying to support their kids. They are actively trying to do that. But I'm saying, especially for black kids, the pressure to assimilate is a lot harder because we have that sort we have that whole thing of being black under our belts. So there is very much a lack of and Lena does talk about it in her book. There is this very much like this um this need not so much a need but this like pressure to assimilate to culture by going to college be on the straight and narrow like very much like you have to you have to do everything in your possible you have to do everything in your power to appear normal if you go outside the lines of normalcy you're only asking for trouble and i feel like that is very much a pressure that kind of, and she does talk about this as well. Um, there is this also pressure that black young black kids will feel to assimilate because they don't want to be ostracized. They feel like they will be made fun of. And like I said, younger kids, especially during those preteen ages, all they want to do is feel accepted. All they want to do is feel like they don't fit. They want to be able to fit in. That sense of community is very important for them. So when you do have, like, when you do try to discourage them to go out and do things that they want to do, they're just going to fall in line with everyone else and just fit into that rather than expressing themselves to feel as though they have a sense of identity or individuality. So that was one thing. Um, I will say this. I will say this. Growing up, I felt more of, like, a rock metal kid than I did a punk kid because I do feel like the scenes when it comes to the scene of punk versus hardcore and say I'm mostly going to focus on the scene of punk music the punk scene versus the metal scene I feel like the punk scene there's a lot more gatekeeping there's very much this sense of like yes it's faster it's louder and it's more political Sometimes, depending on which band you listen to. But I do feel like there's this sense of, like, 
not so much the pop punk scene because I know maybe a lot of like the senior punk basically will kind of look their nose down on fans of pop punk even though I do feel like that is the gateway genre for people to get more into the punk scene but I do feel like there is this sense of gatekeeping when it comes to the punk scene because I do feel like there's very a lot of like a lot of like this sort of protect this with your like protect this at all costs because it is very much like a gatekeeping type of mentality of like you have to prove that you belong here which I think is some crap because it's bad enough that we all get ostracized by society in one way or another. Now this music that we care about and this music we love, now we have to worry about people ostracizing us because they're not we're not up to their level of this. We're not up to snuff to them. It it's very much a gatekeeping mentality. Not to say that metal bands and metal fans aren't gatekeepers as well. They are. Nine times out of ten, you'll always get this sense of like if you see somebody wearing a metal shirt, your first instinct is to go up them and ask them, name three Metallica songs, go, name four. It's like you get those gatekeeping vibes, but it's not as extreme to me as I feel with punk because I feel like you're always being questioned about like the validity of your punk knowledge by like, oh, you like this band? Well, they suck. You, you're not a punk. You're not a true punk. Because you like this band instead of this band. Like, there's very much that sort of stand, that standoffish nature that I feel is just way too toxic. And plus, I think I just gravitated more to metal because, like, for the music, for me, it's all about the melodies. Like, I tried to get into, like, Portia, my best friend, I love you, Portia. And I get you've been trying to get me into band, Bad Brains, but... Bad Brains, for me, isn't clicking. I have a lot of respect for those dudes and what they've been contributing to music, but I just it just doesn't click for me as much as it does for other bands. I'm sorry. But that's just me. I can't speak for anybody else. That's just me. Um, Like, going back to the metal scene, I will say this, especially with the hard rock scene, I get where they're coming from because I feel like their situation is a lot more different than my situation when it comes to this sort of gatekeeping culture. Because I think for them, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, especially with like comic books, for example, I feel like the reason why there's this sense of gatekeeping amongst metal fans is because when you get made fun of your entire life for liking this type of music, and you get made fun of by your peers because you enjoy this like type of music, comic book, professional wrestling, whatever it may be, anime. You get made fun of a lot for liking this stuff. Whether you're black or white, Latino, Latin X, whatever you call yourself under the sun or whatever you self-identify as, you get made fun of this stuff. So, of course, you're going to feel some type of way. If you do see how this has become popular, then all of a sudden, it's cool now. All of a sudden, oh, the Kardashians are... This is just an example. This is just an example. The Car- That whole thing when people, like metal fans, got all up in a tizzy when the Kardashians started wearing metal band t-shirts. All of a sudden, 
here come the people like, she's not a real fan. She's just a poser. Da, 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 da. It's like, I can, I can understand their, where they're coming from. That's because like, I remember when I was watching, um, this documentary and Kurt Cobain was on it and he was talking about how like the same guys who were making fun of him in high school were going to his shows to watch him play music live was a complete and utter, sorry for cursing, but a complete and utter mind fuck for him because to see these men, to see these people who gave you shit your whole entire life or gave you shit while you're in high school are coming to see you play music live because now you're somebody that is a complete and utter mind fuck and that is something people will never understand and i get that i get where they're coming from all of a sudden like out of nowhere all like it, it's very much the whole bandwagon culture like i've been a fan of marvel granted i watched the movies first before i read the comics but still i know my shit so then all of a sudden you got these people who are watching these movies and they don't know anything about the characters. Like, it bothered me to hear about these parents who were getting offended and were, like, raising all this hell because they took their kids to go see Deadpool, even though Deadpool is rated R. And I'm, st- I'm sitting there watching these mothers get all up and get their panties all in a bunch and get all upset when it's like, if you knew the character, you would know this is not a... This is not Iron Man and this is not Spider-Man. Deadpool is a whole nother monster. No pun intended. But still, I digress. I just feel like it's a lot tougher to be a fan. For me, at least, it seems like a lot tougher to go into the scene, go into a punk scene and not kind of want to pull your hair out because there's a bunch of people telling you don't listen to this band listen to this band no this person is wrong they're kind of very just like we're cool and it's very much very like high level gatekeeping at least in my opinion i haven't experienced it yet but just from the outside looking in that's just a a thing i'm not really looking forward to trying to delve into so a couple of other things uh dealing with racism in canada so lena also talks about how she's dealt with the everyone thinks like oh can't like this sort of like she basically discusses her experiences dealing with racism in Canada even though this is supposed to be this like sort of nicer country and everything there is not every country is going to be as progressive as we think it just happens but she delves into her situations and her experiences dealing with classmates who were racist towards her who were um, biased and prejudiced against her and then her navigating those waters and coming out on top if you will of dealing with these certain situations as well as like there's a couple of so the first half of the book talks about her experiences and then the general experience of being black liking this music being called an oreo being called out of your name for liking this music because it's weird, it's not normal for black people to be into this music, let alone black women to be into this extreme form of music. It's just something not normal. It's just something that is not on, this is something that is not seen every single day. So that is one part of this that delves into that. So I will say this, like I said, the first half of this book 
delves into uh, people's experiences. So the chapter, so there's there's eight chapters. The first one, Canadian Steel. Uh, chapter two, Metal Can Save Your Life or at least your sanity. So I really enjoyed that chapter. Uh, chapter three, I'm here because we started it. Chapter four, so you think you're white. Chapter five, the only one syndrome. Chapter uh, six, two black, two metal, and all woman. Chapter seven, the lingering stench of racism and metal. And chapter eight, remove the barricades and stage dive. So like I said before, chapter one deals with uh, Lena's time being in Canada, uh, Canada, uh, Canada. And being a uh, black child adopted by a white family and her experiences dealing with that. Then um, chapter two delves into sort of the mental uh, state of women and how this music has uh, helped her a lot with her um, um, just mentally. And how this music kind of helps with dealing with emotions that you're not allowed to express. Um, the sort of hangups that we as black women face to have to be these sort of unrealistic, um, ex these basically black women dealing with these unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of us, um, as far as like not being able to show our emotions, not being considered like being considered hypersexual and just, just dealing with the overall pressures that these sort of social const constructs and pressures that we have to deal with all the time. And then also, um, it also spends a good majority expressing everyone else's sort of start into this music and their just general, um, their just general, uh, love for this music and how it's helped them out very much. And just general, just horrible, uh, <laughs> stereotypes they've had to deal with. And then chapter three. Uh, delves into my biggest, um, example or my biz biggest, like, form of, like, see, see, why aren't you listening to this music even though, so, chapter three delves into, um, the culture and the landscape of, we still, why we listen to this music, we started this music, this very much, like, oh, these, these white artists basically got all their styles and everything from these black musicians, these black artists, such as like uh, Little Richard and James Brown and Howlin' Wolf, Big Mama Thornton as well, and her connection with like Elvis Presley. These women and these men, these black men and women created this music, started this music, and hell, even most of the imagery that we use, that is seen as part of this culture, the mohawks, the tattoos, the facial piercings, come from these indigenous countries, come from these indigenous nations of these, these black people who wore their hair and wore these tattoos. And basically everything about this culture and about this landscape started somewhere with black people. And that's chapter three. Uh, chapter four deals with the whole backlash, um, we face, black people face for liking this music, um, such as, like, certain situations where she's had people come up to her and say, like, oh, so you think you're white for liking this music? Like, your race 
has to be connected to the music that you listen to, which is utter ridiculousness and very, very stupid. My experiences growing up when it came to music was very varied. Yes, a predominant, a good chunk of my childhood, I did listen to hip-hop, R&B, early 2000s hip-hop and R&B, listening to soul, old-school R&B, old-school hip-hop. I listened to this. I know who Slick Rick is. I know who the OJs are. I know who Barry White is. I also know Ashanti and Nelly and all these other artists because I grew up listening to this music first. And then, out of just sheer frustration with the music I was listening to because I felt like I couldn't relate to it anymore. Like, I honestly, I was like 13, 12 years old. What do I have to relate to Lil Wayne what did what in my life could relate to a guy who raps about how much money he's making, how much women he's sleeping with? How can I relate to that as a straight black woman? Relate to that. Especially during that time frame, especially for me, I just couldn't relate to it anymore, so I found a different music genre to listen to. Plus, watching pro wrestling helped too because Their music that they were using at the time, especially for WWE's product, was all hard rock. The first Seven Dust song I heard was because of WWE. So, so you think you're white, sort of deals with the backlash um, certain black artists faced as well for delving into rock music, as well as getting backlash from other white artists for getting into this music, as well as white audiences as well. And it, it was just very difficult. It was just, And then that sort of thing of having to prove your blackness. One example that always comes back to me that makes me cringe on the inside. One time, um, I'm not going to say the person's name, but back in high school, I mostly hung out with a very multi, uh, multiracial group of kids. Um, there were some who were black, some kids who were mixed race, one that was Vietnamese, Mexican. It was a bevy of us, right? And I predominantly hung out with them. I didn't hang out with any other black kids other than my friends who were a part of that group. And one of my friends ended up saying to me, we like hanging out with you because you don't act black. And at the time, it didn't hit me yet, but it did leave me feeling very, very... It left me feeling something. And it wasn't a good feeling. And then, of course, later on, I did have my friends who did, you know, they jokingly called me an Oreo. Which, also, now looking back on it, I did have a feeling about it. Because it's something that I've had to deal with my entire life, especially being black growing up on the north side of Chicago as opposed to my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family who grew up in the south or who grew up on the west side of Chicago. Because I talk differently than, say, my family and because I have different experiences, that doesn't make me black. So based upon my experiences, I'm not considered black but yet my family is considered black because of their experiences and what they went through. So we all 
can't just come from different walks of life that we have to prove who we are as people. We just can't exist and be people. There's like different layers of different types of people. Why does mine have to be just this one stereotype? Which bugged the crap out of me. Like at the time, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know how to really just deal with that. But it's just it's just one of those things that is just so got... I'm just going to say it. It's just one of those things that's just so fucking frustrated. Like, how can you be that narrow-minded? And then on top of that, to have that be questioned by other people, I get. But to get it from your own people is just frustrating enough as it is. And the two people that told me that were not black. But still, you have an aspect of where if you say you like this music, you're going to get weird looks. You say you like anime, you're going to get weird looks. Why, I have no idea. Which is so dumbfound, which doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Like, why am I not allowed to like, like this stuff just because you consider it part of white culture when it really isn't? And it's just, and then what's crazy is when people, when you say like, why, when you say you like anime and people are like, oh, that's that white shit that people watch. It's like, it's Japanese. It's Japanese. I, people are just frustrating. So not only do you get that, you also get the only one syndrome. Now the only one syndrome, as she discusses in this book, pertains to a certain situation where she felt a little bit insecure because there was another black girl in the scene that she had witnessed, but she was dressing more provocatively than she did. Now, the only one syndrome kind of pertains to this sort of sense of like black people's unwillingness sometimes to share their experiences in their scenes with other black people. This sort of like not so much uh, a pressure or a hang-up. It's more like this territorial feeling of, like, I was already here. There doesn't need to be more of us. Or I was already here. Let's not have them group us together or anything like that. It's very much that sort of, that that stance of, I was here first. I was the only one here. And and that that is, like, one negative aspect of being a part of the scene. I've never experienced that. I welcome people and I want to welcome people, but not to deny that that doesn't happen. It may not happen to me, but it's happened to somebody else. I don't know if there there is people out there who've had other black people who have had that experience. Like, I remember the last metal show I went to, I went to Reggie's, and out of, besides me, I think there was three other black people in that scene, which is crazy to me. Well, no, it's not crazy to me, to be honest with you, but yeah, but I've never once had that sort of mentality of like, I'm the only one here or I'm uh, that sort of like sense of like, I was here first, basically. And then the next chapter delves into two black, two metal and all woman. This sort of um, stereotype that black women face as being over sexual, uh, being over sexualized or these two sexual, uh, aspects of our personalities or the way we are stereotyped we are deemed overly sexual and she sort of delves into 
women being able to take back their sense of sexuality, their sense of sense, sensual, sensual or sensuality and taking it back and being proud of who you are and just standing there and being who you are. And she delves into some of the pressures of having to prove yourself as well. Like, not only are you in the scene that is predominantly male, but you're also in the scene that is predominantly white. And how you have to work twice as hard and how you have to sort of take back this sense of who you are as a person and take and being confident in who you are and taking your your sense of self back from people who would perceive you in this way and in this light. And then, of course, the most obvious one, I want to say, the lingering stretch of racism in metal. Uh, she also delves into, I want to say the second half of this book is dedicated to that. This sort of like, you can't put the, you can't pretty much write this a book like this without discussing types of racism that we as black people face in these scenes. Um, she also talks about a certain couple of incidents where she was hurt or she was physically assaulted or she was verbally assaulted by a couple of fans and how some of these fans... And certain ban incidents as well. And she also delves into the question as well that, you know, a lot of us face. is like, if you have a favorite band and they have a racist background or they were known to do something racist, would you still listen to them? And it's a very big question that I feel as though many white fans don't have to question as hard or as much. Because to them, they could just say no or they could say yes. But for us, it's a whole different thing. For example, for me, everybody knows the song Headstrong by the band Trap. It's, it was one of the staples during the early 2000s. It was one of the biggest singles out there. I was a fan of this band. Notice I said was. In recent, I want to say last year, maybe two years ago, the lead singer was in the media for basically spewing some very xenophobic, some racist stuff. Now, like I said, I was really into this band, even later on in life. And then to realize that the lead singer was known to spout these very harmful, like very, very evil sentiments about marginalized groups. It was just, I'm good. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just stopped listening. I couldn't do it. If you don't believe me, or if you're not going to take my word for it, you can just look it up. Now, I don't know if he has since apologized for anything he said. If he did apologize, then hey, I'm all for giving second chances. But I haven't heard anything. I kind of just didn't want to deal with it, so I just kind of wiped it off. Didn't deal with it. So, she delves into that aspect as well. Would you be willing to listen to these bands and would you be willing to overlook their sort of bad behaviors that is essentially and then of course dealing with the overt racism that we all face as marginalized groups and then in the last chapter she calls uh remove the barricades and stage dive so she touches on a little bit of an uh an aspect that I am very familiar with 
when I started becoming more and more of a metal fan. She talks about, like, people... She talks about us, like, she mostly wanted to discuss getting more black people involved in this scene, raising awareness about these bands that are in this scene, um, getting more black artists and more black female artists into these scenes and giving them more time, giving them more energy, giving them more like viewership and making them, we as fans, more aware of these bands because it helps everybody out and it helps out the scene. And she wants to see more of these black women in these bands playing guitar or singing in these groups and just, just, you know, prospering. And she gives a couple of examples of certain artists who, you know, at the most part during their beginning of their um, rises, you know, they were very popular. I remember being around and watching Fifi Dobson sort of get her start. And like, I remember watching her on like, I want to say Teen Nick when they were still doing like, they were showing like advertisements for music videos still in between the TV shows, the teenage TV shows at that point. And I remember what, and it was a good song, and I downloaded her music. I haven't heard anything from her since. And that was, like, many years ago. I want to say right around 2006, I'm going to say. But it is very difficult for these bands out here to get their name out there, to get a name for themselves when they don't have the support from their own major labels. Nowadays, you can see a lot of these artists are starting to go independent. They're not doing their own record labels, like these major record labels anymore. A lot of artists, even outside of the metal community, are becoming more independent. Like, it's, you can put yourself out there and be known and not have to deal with the, uh, the corporate side of the music industry, basically, and the music business. Because you could just upload your own music video to YouTube and then your stuff is already out there. Like, Just a Mess is one example. The only reason why I found their music was because of YouTube. Um, and then, of course, there's still the, the usual option of they get picked up or, like, they get mentioned in a magazine. Like, how I met and how I found out about Shark Tooth was through Revolver Magazine, Artist uh, You Don't Want to Miss, that first page. Uh, I remember finding out about those bands or like finding out about bands on MTV when they still played music videos. And then they also, she also um, delves into the side of when it comes to this metal scene, whether you're black or whether you're white, I feel as though it is true. A lot of these, and I've heard it from several artists as well, this music genre that I love is more celebrated overseas than it is in America. Because they she delves into one aspect. Um, she does talk about how this scene is more appreciated overseas than it is over here because over there it's a lot it's a lot vaster and they don't talk they don't sort of categorize it as much as we do over here. Over here in America, we tend to put everything in its own separate category. Over there overseas in like bands like Europe and in download and like those type of uh, festivals you can have band you can have artists like Jay-Z be on stage with like Slipknot or like Kanye West go on stage and then Event Sevenfold will go on and then you'll have like Ari Lennox 
And then next thing you know, you'll have, like, say, a sharp tooth or fire from the gods or anything like that. You'll have that on there, and they'll be treated differently. Josephine Baker, I remember when I was watching Lovecraft Country, Josephine Baker was in Paris during that time. In, like, the 1920s. It's just... I don't know. Like, Tina Turner is another big example. Like, after everything that she had went through over here in America, she ends up going to live in Europe, and she's been there for the past couple of, like, decades or so. She just decided to move to Europe, and it's it's quieter, it's easier to deal with over there, and I can understand that. Like, and I remember it was a couple of years ago, Killswitch and Gage were on tour, and they took video, and they were playing the show, and I want to say it was, like, one of these uh, South American countries that they went to go play a show, and the crowd was just bouncing and singing along. And he was saying, they do this here. Why don't they do it over where in America? Because they were into it. The whole song, everyone was singing the song and bouncing and having a good time. And it was just a good energy. And you don't see that here. You really don't see it's very, It's different worlds down there as opposed to up in America. And it's, it's, it's. It's definitely a mind-blowing experience, especially to witness that on camera as opposed to, like, just being there in the moment. I can understand what they're talking about. It's just a whole different ballpark. It's a whole different type of monster. But with that being said, um, she does uh, delve into an epilogue as well as an introduction by skin. And she does have a survey at the end of the book. I gotta say... This is very much a must-read. There are some extreme moments in here. There's a lot of uh, the use of racial slurs in here. But it is just used to get a point across and to express like certain experiences that we all have faced. Uh, and by we, I mean black women or black people who have faced like some type of scrutiny um, delving into these scenes or being a fan of these scenes. It's... It's very much a must-read. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed this book. And yeah, I give it a 10 out of 10. So shout out Lena Dawes. If you if this podcast happens to come across your desk or come across your ears during any time, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed your book, and I highly recommend it. So uh, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. At X, you can also find me on Instagram at X. All my uh, social medias are in the description box, I believe. Or if you do find this episode on Anchor or wherever you listen to your podcast, feel free to follow one of the links in the um, description box. You can leave me voice messages, tell me some stuff you didn't like about certain episodes, tell me stuff you did like about certain episodes. The only way I get better is if you guys tell me how to get better. That's the only way this works. So, with all that being said, my name is Brittany, and I will catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye.